Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this of uh, the EAA's end of year wrap up for 2021. Um, we thought it would be a great idea to, to hold this session towards the end of the year. It's been a difficult year on top of another difficult year um, in 2020 um, in the world of education and assessments. So we thought it'd be interesting to end with a bit of a wrap up that will look at um, quite a thought provoking um, topic around um, the connections between using cognitive enhancing drugs and online assessment. And I am um, delighted to uh, invite uh, Dr. Ellie Domit to the stage with me. Um, and so Ellie is a, a reader in neuroscience um, at King's at College London. She's deputy director for curriculum for the development of undergraduate um, psychology and as a teacher in that as well. Um, she's been at King's for, for seven years particularly interested in and, 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 and a bit of an expert actually in the use of e-learning and and technology to uh, support learning learning delivery um, i understand she's also a very keen runner um, and preparing for a half marathon at, at the moment um, and describes herself and i really love this description because i am similar to in this as well as being owned by a greyhound um, i'm not owned by a greyhound but i am definitely owned by our two dogs so absolutely share that sentiment there and they drive your life um, so um, Ellie, um, thank you very much for, for joining us today and for offering us some insight into this session. Um, we're gonna have questions um, for Ellie after her presentation. So if you have got questions, please pop those into, uh, into the chat um, in, the, in the video feed that you're, uh, uh, that you're watching on at the moment. You can also um, use Twitter to send questions through to our hashtag, which is at um, eassess. Um, uh, so we'll deal with some questions after Ellie's um, presented. And then after that, um, I'm going to be making some um, really interesting and hopefully um, compelling announcements around our plans for our annual conference um, and awards program uh, in uh, the coming 12 months. So do stick around for that um, if you can as well. But at that point, I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to hand over to Ellie um, and she's going to talk to us. Um, around this really interesting topic of, 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 of um, cognitive enhancing drugs um, and online assessment. So Ellie, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so I, I'm gonna talk to you about a topic um, that really has sort of, I think it's been bubbling away under the surface, but in the situation that we found ourselves in, um, moving lots of teaching and learning to um, the online platforms more than we had done previously i think this is something now that's that's going to need quite um serious consideration so i guess the first starting point then is is what do we mean by um cognitive enhancing drugs so to be really clear here when i'm talking about cognitive enhancing drugs i'm not talking about um in this instance i'm not talking about things like caffeine um or your pro plus tablets for anyone that remembers those the definition that I'm working with here is it's a prescription drug that's taken by someone either who doesn't have a prescription at all or they're taking it at a higher dose than they have been prescribed to take it. And their goal when they take this drug is to improve cognitive functions like um, attention or memory. And more commonly, we hear about people um, using phrases around boosting concentration or, or boosting their brain power, which actually as a neuroscientist, brain power isn't really a thing. But um, what they tend to be talking about there is things like attention and memory. So these drugs, um, I think it's important to say these drugs are prescribed for known and accepted medical conditions. So common um, 
cognitive enhancers are modafinil and Adderall. Adderall is a brand name for amphetamine. And these two drugs are prescribed regularly for individuals with narcolepsy or ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And using them if you have one of those conditions is not classed as using them as a cognitive enhancer. So I kind of find a sort of ladder system is quite helpful here. So we can imagine that somebody with um, healthy typical cognition might be here on our ladder system and someone with ADHD or narcolepsy could be a little lower down. So perhaps they're less able um, to do certain attention tasks, for example, when they take their medication, they are trying to bring themselves up to a level that is comparable to those that don't have the condition. So I'm not talking about people trying to take drugs to create um, a situation where they are on par with others that don't have a known medical condition. In this case, we're talking about healthy individuals who are taking the drugs to boost themselves above what would be typically found. So that's that's the kind of difference here. We're not talking about repairing a deficit. We're talking about going higher up um, from the healthy level. So when we think about these drugs, um, they are being used by all sorts of people. We know that the literature tells us that. And by the way, I put the alternative names on the side there. So they're sometimes called smart drugs or just cognitive enhancers or nootropics. Um, I'm going to try and use uh, either cognitive enhancers or, or smart drugs throughout, but just um, they are all meant to be the same thing. So in terms of why we're interested in them in, in the context of assessment is probably because the group of people that have received the most attention in this topic is actually um, undergraduate students, university students. So what we know is that um, at a kind of um, at some universities and the levels do vary across university, use is thought to be up to 25%. So one in four students are taking these drugs um, during their study time. Um, it isn't, as I said, it's not something that's entirely restricted to students, but they are the group that have received the most um, attention in this in the research in this area. So then we have to ask ourselves, why is this an issue? Maybe it's just okay to um, take these drugs. Why are we concerned about them at all? Well, there's several reasons to be concerned and they sort of fall into the categories shown here. So the first reason uh, is whether they actually work or not. So these drugs have been developed as medicines and when you're developing a drug as a medicine, you're developing it to be used by a particular clinical population. So perhaps that's a group of people with narcolepsy. That's not to say it has any effects on individuals that don't have those conditions or that it has the same effects. So a, a kind of perhaps more tangible example here is antidepressants. If you give antidepressants to somebody that isn't depressed, it doesn't make them ecstatically happy. So there's nothing to suggest that giving a drug that can improve attention to somebody that doesn't have an impairment in attention would give them better than normal levels of attention. So there is mainly only data about efficacy, effectiveness, in these specific clinical populations. There's actually very little evidence that they work in healthy individuals to deliver the same kind of outcomes, so improved attention or concentration. And arguably what's more interesting is the evidence that does exist tends to be self-report evidence. So individuals saying, I felt like I attended better when I taken the drug. And of course, there's an awful lot that can be done just on expectation biases. So people expect to feel better. That's, that, of course, is the, the basis of things like the placebo effect. So the first area where we might be concerned about the use of these drugs is that there's not really any evidence that they are doing 
what people think they're doing, or at least there is very limited evidence. The second area is around risk. Of course, all drugs carry um, a known risk with them. Any, any substance that we take or put into our body could potentially have side effects. And when we're talking about drugs like amphetamine, those side effects can be quite substantial. And in fact, the reason um, there is regular debate about the use of amphetamine in ADHD is because some of the side effects are quite serious um, related to things like tachycardia, so altered heart, um, heartbeat, heart rhythms, um, but also uh, psychosis and more minor headache, uh, headache type symptoms as well. So all drugs carry a risk associated with them. And most of the time that risk is deemed um, an, a manageable or an acceptable risk given the potential benefits that can be gained if you're treating a medical condition. If you're not treating a condition in the first place, those risks might not seem quite so minor. Another thing, of course, is that when these drugs are being taken, although the drugs themselves are not all illegal to purchase, they're not being purchased through a doctor when they're used for cognitive enhancers. So just to um, perhaps touch on some of the legalities here. Drugs like modafinil can be legally purchased, um, but drugs like amphetamine, of course, is a class B drug that you shouldn't be buying illegally. So that, But of course, if it's prescribed to you and then you're taking it at a higher dose than prescribed, then technically you haven't broken the law in, in getting the drug. So there are issues around um, the legality, which add to the, the risk because people are then buying these drugs online or they're buying them from other individuals who have been prescribed the medication. Around 50% um, of adults with ADHD, I think it's 50% report selling on, passing on the medication, for example. So in that case, individuals are taking medication without seeing a doctor first, so without having an analysis of the risks. And of course, when they're purchasing the drugs online, they could actually be purchasing anything. There's nothing to say it's actually the drugs that they think they're getting. So efficacy and risk are really quite significant issues with these drugs. But the issue that probably ties closest to um, the academic context or the learning context in general is the issue around ethics. So when you ask students about what they think of these drugs, they sort of come down on two, um, into two halves. There are some that believe it's really unfair and there are others that kind of say, well, you know, it's no different to other inequalities in the education system. And, you know, I guess the, the obvious one here is financial cost. Nobody is going to give you a drug for free. So you're going to have to have the money to purchase that drug. And if you have the money to purchase the drug, you probably also have the money perhaps to um, access uh, extra teaching resources, perhaps tutoring when you're at school or your family, um, but also being able to buy the latest textbooks or things things like that. Um, and it, certainly we know um, from being a university based in in um, in London, which of course is an expensive area, that for some students it is a choice of coming onto campus to attend their lectures or paying their food bill that week. And so they have to stay at home and watch lecture capture. So we know there are inequalities in the education system that exist already around finances, and this could be an extra um, or an exacerbation of those inequalities. And then, as I said, that there are students that think they're fundamentally unfair, that this is akin to cheating. 
So because of all of these factors, because of the concerns about effectiveness, the risk that individuals are taking, and of course, universities do have a duty of care to, to students, but also because of the issues around whether this is making the education experience um, unequal in some way, or whether it's akin to cheating, like plagiarism, buying your essay from an essay mill, universities arguably should be trying to reduce the use of um, these cognitive enhancing drugs. So what might they do to try and reduce the use of drugs? Well, if you think about this issue, but you don't think about it for too long, you might think, oh, well, the obvious thing to do is let's just drugs test students and check they're not using these drugs. But that, of course, is, is highly unlikely to go down very well with students themselves. But it's also um, hugely implausible to try and, and drugs test um, students for these drugs, especially when in some cases the drugs will be legitimately prescribed to the students, so they'll be in their system. There's also um, a question of when would you drugs test? So the image shown on the screen here is clearly not um, an undergraduate student. It's a schematic of a rat on a maze. Um, and rats can do some pretty impressive things. Um, I think on a good day, they might outperform some of our undergraduate students, but most of the time they're not doing anything too exciting. In this particular study, what they're asked to do or trained to do is to identify the arms of the maze with a treat in for them, shown as the black blob. And once they've identified that, they then come back um, a little bit later. So they have a testing and a training phase and they have to learn in different variations on the task, either to go down the same arms or different arms of the maze they previously looked down. And this task, although it is ultimately sticking a rat on a maze and asking the rat to, to navigate around the maze, this task tells us about learning and testing phases. So what we know from research in this area is that the effects of the drugs don't seem to just or just be a kind of blanket improvement, even in animal studies like this, where the measures are very simple. It does seem to be dependent a little bit on whether the individual is exposed to the drug in both phases or neither phase. So it seems if there is a, um, a mismatch between the drug status in the learning phase and the testing phase, then it may not actually be beneficial. It could even be worse for, for them in terms of their learning outcome. So because there are nuances around when having the drugs in the system could be beneficial or not, it could be really tricky to know when would you test students? If you were to test students, when would you do it? Um, would you be doing it when they enter the exam hall or should you be doing it at spot checks during the revision period? In terms of universities, at least, there doesn't seem to be as yet any clear um, policies on this coming out of universities. There are, of course, policies around behaviours that could get you disciplined um, or even um, expelled from a university. And some of those will relate to drugs, but they don't relate to the use of cognitive enhancing drugs specifically. And particularly at the moment, most studying and assessment is typically done off campus. So you can't assess a student's drug status if they're not physically on the campus. In this case, we're still seeing students studying at conventional campus universities from another country. Um, and that, of course, may continue for a little while yet. But even when we're in a, a more typical situation than we're in now, students will be on campus or pot potentially you know, using university buildings, probably for the minority of their time. A lot of their studying will be done in their accommodation, whether that's the, the family home, private rental, or university accommodation. And we cannot keep an eye on them all the way through. 
So from that, we know that, you know, just from this brief outline, it's clear that it's going to be nearly impossible to control and monitor use in that way. So it's unlikely to be enough to stop individuals taking these drugs, simply saying that we, we might try some of this monitoring, even if we could get it accepted and into policy, it's unlikely to be that helpful. So if we can't do it that way, we have to look at the other way to do it. Um, more than more than one way to skin tiddles, as my um, one of my old colleagues used to say. And if we can't prevent use in a kind of heavy handed way, then arguably the easiest thing to do, the next thing to do is to try and just simply make use less appealing. Um, and to do that, we have to understand why people might use these drugs in the first place. And understanding that in itself can be quite tricky um, because you have to ask people if they're using them and people have to be willing to admit to it. And some of these drugs, of course, in the case of things like amphetamine, they are illegal drugs. So one of the things that we tend to do in this kind of research is anonymous surveys. There's no reason to think that people will lie in anonymous surveys. They have no benefit to um, lying. But obviously, we do have to be mindful that where the data is anonymous, we can't be verifying it. It's also self-reported data. But what we do know from this kind of study is that the there's no particular age group that are more at risk. Um, this isn't hugely surprising because the, the undergraduate age range, or even if you take into account undergraduates and postgraduate students, is not a hugely big age range. Um, we do know that males are more likely to choose to take these drugs than females. Um, at King's, at least, the most popular choice of drug was modafinil. So that was the one that most people reported using. But we also know that most of them reported very seldom use. So this isn't like they're going out, um, you know, at the weekend and getting all their, perhaps going out and doing paid work because they have to have employment and then realizing they still haven't written their essay. So every Sunday night they're taking their modafinil to work through to submit essays. It seems to be that there might be particular pinch points where they're having, they feel they have to take this, this, these drugs, and it's certainly not something they're doing regularly. So we know that around users and non-users from anonymous surveys, but of course, sample sizes of users is going to be relatively low. If you think that perhaps one in four students are taking them, but you very rarely get a survey where the entire population of a university or or student population of an area take um, complete the survey. So we don't have huge sample sizes here. So one thing we can do instead is we can say, well, okay, everybody has an attitude towards these drugs, even if they're not taking them. And we know that the attitude somebody has will predict their intention and intention will predict use in this case. So let's have a look at what determines whether somebody has a positive or negative attitude towards these drugs. When we look at this, um, we can see, so I've done the classic traffic light system here, which is also very unhelpful if anybody's colorblind, so I apologize for that. But we know that individuals um, who are male have a more positive attitude towards the drugs. Individuals who perceive the drugs to be harmless also have a more um, positive attitude. They also tend, people with positive attitudes tend to think they know enough about, about the drugs to make a safety judgment. Um, and that's an interesting one because actually we did follow-up work where we um, worked with both users and non-users and assessed their knowledge of the safety of modafinil and found that although the users felt they knew more, the reality was they didn't. Um, and in fact, both groups had pretty poor 
safety knowledge of the drugs. But certainly if an individual thinks they have enough knowledge to make a safety judgment, they are more likely to have a positive attitude. We also know that individuals who are more competitive are more likely to take these drugs. And then finally, thinking about learning approaches, individuals with a more surface learning approach, so that's where they are interested in um, often sort of memorizing and um, almost rote rehearsal of things rather than developing a deep understanding. Um, it's, it's often the learning approach, if you're not familiar with it, it's often the one that people criticize. In reality, most of the time we need to adopt some surface learning and some deep learning, but for the individuals that are motivated to adopt this approach, they tend to be more in favor of smart drugs. Um, we did also, we've done other work and shown that there's been no effects of things like your intelligence beliefs or your morality beliefs on whether you're likely to have a positive attitude towards the drugs. So there's lots of factors that might drive a positive attitude, but in terms of factors that drive a negative attitude, it does come down to perceived unfairness. So people won't take these drugs if they think it's offering them an unfair advantage or that others using them. The flip side of that is they wouldn't want others to have access to a drug that gives them an unfair advantage over them. But also academic performance. So the stronger students are less likely to take um, these drugs. Now, that, of course, could be because they either feel more able to, um, to to complete the work to a good standard without the drugs, or potentially they are more able because they have um, developed appropriate study skills, for example. So those study skills allow them to tackle the task without enhancers. So these factors then do tell us a little bit about what we could do to reduce smart drug use, given what we know about um, attitudes and intentions towards them. These are quite, some of these, of course, or I should say the ideas that I'm going to share here are ideas that are good for many other reasons as well, but they could also um, potentially help reduce the likelihood of taking drugs. So what we can't do is we can't suddenly say, well, we'll only take uh, female students and we will make sure that they all perceive the right level of harm and they all perceive that they don't know anything about safety. Um, to an extent, of course, you can raise awareness of the risks of these drugs, and that is absolutely something that's that's worth doing. But it's better to tap in as a university, recognizing that the only contact points we have with students is that, you know, guaranteed contact points is through their teaching. It might be worth trying to look at what can be changed there. And so that taps into the competitiveness and the surface learning. So what could we do to reduce competition or this sense of competitiveness in our students? I guess one of the most important things that is an area that always comes up regularly kind of coming around in the debates is to reduce the reliance on grades. And this is a really um, tricky thing to do. I think many people working in teaching and learning are um, like the idea in principle of a reduced reliance on grades. The reality is it can be quite tricky to implement. Um, not least because students expect um, grades. And by the time they come to a university level of education, they have had this kind of grade approach very much drilled into them. So if we don't give them a grade, they actually get quite annoyed about it. So if we could reduce the amount of grades, that would be good. And this could be a balance, of course, of potentially increasing formative but decreasing summative assessment, or really emphasizing that um, a need for assessment of um, for learning, not of learning. 
Also, one of the things that tends to come around that, of course, is, is underpinned by competition is this idea of normative marking that, you know, we have a cohort, the top 10% will get a first. So you need to be in that top 10% as opposed to we have a cohort and the ones that meet a particular criteria, all of them will get a first, all of them will get a 2-1. So perhaps better communicating where normative marking is or isn't being used and why could be quite helpful. So that may be one way of reducing competition. Another way could be to emphasize the need um, for collaboration, both in learning and assessment. So adopting methods of teaching that require the students to work together can reduce um, a sense of com competition and develop. They will become more aware, hopefully, of the benefits of collaboration and stop seeing their peers as competition for a top grade and start seeing them as um, another means or channel to develop their own learning and to improve, so to work with each other. Online um, assessment has really made, has really come into its own in the last, um, well, I mean, not since the pandemic, actually, in the last sort of five to 10 years, it's really come into its own. And the ability to work collaboratively, collaboratively online is huge. So being able to set collaborative assessments and putting those in an online medium is a really good way to get students to work together. And of course, sometimes you can have groups of, of students or individuals working together that have actually never met and are randomly allocated to a group. So there is no expectation about, well, that person's going to be better than me. Um, and, and you can actually almost remove, you don't necessarily want to, but you can almost remove the individual identities if all assessment or collaboration is online. Of course, when you're doing that, there is a need to be careful because if, um, especially for any online activity, if the students don't have the relevant digital skills, they could end up becoming more stressed and that could be more of a driver, for example, to take um, drugs to support their study. So that's how we could reduce competition, but could we do anything to improve the level of learning? So shifting from surface to deeper learning. Well, we know that students will tend to default, even if they're happy with deep learning methods, we know they'll default to surface learning if the amount of content is unmanageable or if it's just far too tricky. We also know, of course, that you need to challenge students as part of the learning process, challenge them intellectually, but making sure that there is this fine line between volume and level um, and challenge can ensure a better approach to learning in the sense that it could be a deeper approach. We also um, often sort of set up our activities and we don't necessarily, you know, we're encouraging students to read around the subject, but actually we haven't necessarily left them any time to do that in the workload planning of a module. So if we schedule time for them to have that time to either read around or perhaps if they're not as confident to revisit as much of the material as they need to, that might shift them away from service learning as well. Self-assessment activities help and of course they don't even have to be labeled as assessment activities but you know mini quizzes, um, reflecting that reflective activities, discussions online or in person of course can all help them reflect on whether they understand a topic which can help promote deep learning. We also know that there is literature that suggests certain types of assessment method are more likely to support a student taking a deeper approach. So the classic uh, dichotomy is the multiple choice question supports service learning, whereas an essay question supports deep learning. And 
Although I say that's a classic thing, of course, if your multiple choice questions require them to apply their knowledge to novel situations, then that's not necessarily the case. But it's about designing assessment that relies on application or understanding, not memory. And then a relatively um, less well investigated area is the effect of feedback. So we do know that students um, will change how they approach their learning in response to their feedback experiences. So if somebody um, gives them just a grade and nothing else, they may think, OK, I'm just going to do service learning. But if they're getting written feedback, they may be more likely to take a deep learning approach. So as well as those ideas, I guess one of the sort of bonus ideas that I would suggest is that we know these students aren't using um, these drugs on a regular basis. We know they're not. We know there must be a trigger or a pinch point. And that suggests that they're using them when they have a particularly busy schedule, when they're particularly stressed, or perhaps they've got lots of assessments due in at any one point in time. So on that basis, I would suggest that the best approach is, of course, to look at workload across what the student is experiencing and take it from there rather than try to sort of deal with it on a module basis. Of course, that's nearly impossible across a whole degree program, but it may be possible across specific cohorts. So that's um, I've got some useful sources there in case anybody wants to follow up with anything. But that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ellie. Um, that was a, a great presentation and, and some really interesting stuff there. And, and to be honest, a lot to unpick. Now, I feel like we probably need another half an hour to, uh, to to talk about some of the stuff you've raised there. But it was really, really interesting. And, and, and thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, if you are interested in understanding a little bit more about this area, it's worth noting um, that the Victor's blog um, featured a podcast um, with Ellie um, in July. I've popped the link there on the bottom of that slide. Um, so if you do want to have, uh, you know, to find out a little bit more about this and to listen um, to Ellie in a more of a conversational setting talking about this this area, then I do recommend that you visit um, that, that blog and, and listen to the podcast. But we have got some questions that have come in from, from the audience. So Ellie, if you don't mind, we'll just spend um, maybe five minutes um, talking through some of these. Um, so we had a question from Fiona. She says, I wonder, um, I was just wondering how it could be proved that drugs work and so become appealing. Could it be that people who have undiagnosed ADHD have found them useful? Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big issue, of course, especially when you're talking about student populations who who are typically over the age of 18. And we know that adult diagnosis of, of things like ADHD is, is not necessarily um, perhaps as common as it is to diagnose someone as a child. So it could be that. But I think as well that, it, you know, we do. It's a bit like many of these things that when someone tries something, they think it helps them. They tell other people and, and, and that actually we need an objective measure of something um, and the objective measures aren't really there at the moment. So I think it is a case of, you know, one person tries something. Um, they say, yeah, yeah, it worked for me. Well, actually, maybe it just worked for them because they subconsciously put in more effort because they wanted to believe that they could now achieve something. Um, so yeah, it's tricky. And certainly some of the people probably will have um, undiagnosed conditions that perhaps benefit a little from these drugs. And you do wonder, actually, just thinking about that, whether that whole peer pressure piece and, and, and word of mouth plays to this too, that as you say, if, if there's no 
empirical evidence that it actually has a positive impact. It doesn't really matter in the eyes of the students. If someone says that was fantastic, it really helped me focus, um, then then maybe others will, will emulate that and, and try it as well. So it is, a, it is a tricky thing. And I guess that leads on to the next question that's been um, put in the chat, which is uh, we were wondering whether there was any awareness of companies targeting students with marketing for drugs um, in the same way that we've seen um, around SA Mills and, and other cheating services. Um, not so far that I'm aware, but I suspect if they're doing their targeting carefully, I won't be in the demographic on, on social media that would see them. Um, so not that I'm aware and not that we've heard from students. Um, we haven't explicitly asked that question. We have asked them if they're aware of users, um, if they're aware of availability or accessibility of these drugs. Um, but we haven't heard if they're sort of targeting them. We do know they, they'll target, um, you know, of course, we see it with other non-cognitive enhancing things like the energy drinks are clearly targeting a particular market. So it's possible that if you're in the right demographic, you're seeing some of these things that I wouldn't see and that no one's told, told us about yet. And the problem is, I think it's a bit like the essay meals. No student's going to go to their personal tutor or their lecturer and say, every time I log on to Twitter or every time I'm on Instagram, I'm getting all these promoted ads for um, mm. these Thing, these drugs that are meant to help me study. So I suspect they are out there, but I don't think it's widespread um, kind of legitimate advertising by companies. Mm, okay, no, that's great, thank you. Um, another question here, um, uh, what level of awareness about this issue are there within the HE sector and, and, and is there um, a concern about it? So, you know, are, are universities broadly aware of, of this as an issue and, and do they care? Um, maybe that's too hard, but you know, is yeah. there? Is there... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think they absolutely are aware. And I would say they do, they are concerned about it. Um, and they're concerned from both perspectives. I mean, obviously, if students are taking drugs, and there's a risk, they're concerned that if something happens to, to the student, there is not only potentially loss of life or serious illness to a student, but there's also reputational damage. Um, but I think they are mainly concerned about the idea of ad academic conduct and cheating. And I think concern was rising pre-pandemic and then with everything else that's changed I think it's just kind of fallen off the radar there is a lot of concern around student mental health um, of course across the sector and that tends to focus on um, so when they're looking at some of the issues around that it tends to focus on use of, of drugs and alcohol to manage uh, or self-medicate so of course that's a different kind of drug use although in reality they can be the same drugs but just taken for a different purpose so I think there is concern I think there is definitely awareness of it I don't think it's on the top of the radar at the moment because of the, the massive issues around um, student mental health in general and then of course what's what's happened in the sector since Covid. Yeah, as you say, juggling an awful lot of priorities right now. So it's, um, it's understandable. Um, so uh, another interesting question here is about, um, so what would be the lead indicators of a drug that actually did help students achieve better performance in exams? Has any of your research touched on, on looking at, at that? So I guess um, in terms of, this is, I, this is a really tricky one because what exactly they'd be doing in an exam um, is, is going to be sort of critical in answering that question. I mean, I suppose what we would, what you would expect is that they would be able to learn things more quickly um, in preparation. So often it isn't about what the student does in the exam, it's often about cramming for the exam. So once they're in the exam setting, 
them you know actually sitting in an exam hall or, or whatever they're doing for their exam that would almost be the same it's more about their ability to cram a lot of learning into a small space in time so if you're looking for a drug that can do that then you're actually looking for a, for a drug effectively that can reduce the time to learn a particular task and we do know that things like amphetamine can do that um, but what we tend to know and that most of that research has come from animal studies and the doses used would be the doses that are associated with um, drug abuse in the, in the sense of addiction rather than taking it as a smart drug. There's all sorts of issues around this as well so although that this kind of research is best done in non-human individuals initially um, you know your, your average lab rat won't swallow a pill with its breakfast so you have to administer the the drug normally through an injection and that changes the pharmacodynamics of it completely um, to how it would be taken um, by a person and that's an added complication that means we haven't really got to grips with this that and the fact that learning for a person is a far more complex task than it is for an animal um, there, there will be there will be data out there but it will often be i suspect data from control groups in clinical studies so it's not available in and of itself, but only in comparison to the clinical groups. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and one last question, and, and, and I have to ask this one because I was sitting next to someone at a conference um, a couple of weeks ago talking about this very topic because he had signed up, the person I was sitting next to, to come along. And he said, well, look, you know, I don't let my children drink Red Bull because I believe that that's not a positive thing for them to do. Do you think, I know you said right at the beginning, you know, this, this wasn't about Red Bull and caffeine and, and that kind of thing, but is that the start of a slippery slope potentially that that says, you know, well, I'm, you know, it's okay for me to drink Red Bull and and, and to take, you know, lots of, of, of strong coffee before I sit down and study or, or have an exam. Is that an excuse that then leads into potentially more serious drug abuse? Um, I think, I mean, the short answer is in terms of research, we don't know. Um, the long answer is I would I would be quite cautious about that. You know, we talk about the gateway effect. Um, it particularly comes up in the literature around whether cannabis is a gateway drug to, to harder drugs like um, heroin, for example. Um, and there's all sorts of ideas and research that could say, OK, well, yes, if you smoke cannabis, you are more likely to take other drugs. But that might just be because you know where to get them where you didn't sure. before but also there's plenty of evidence that people might smoke cannabis and never go on to take any other drugs and I think um, so I think the idea of something being a gateway is probably quite unlikely I suspect in in this case with cognitive enhancers I suspect that one thing that probably is more important in the in the equation is you know I, I, for example, am an avid Red Bull drinker. I cannot function. My fridge currently has 24 cans of Red Bull in it. Um, I don't smoke. I don't drink coffee or tea. Um, I don't drink alcohol and I certainly don't take drugs. So I think it's, you know, th there will be people that will have certain boundaries and the legality side of it, I suspect, is, is a big thing. So where Red Bull and caffeine are legal, some of these drugs aren't. But the other side of it is, are you taking these the, the coffee or having the can of rebel but then studying effectively because you have the study skills or are you having to do that because you don't have the study skills and it's the yes. only way you can sit for long enough and if it's the latter I'd be worried if it's the former I wouldn't think it's a route into um into the using cognitive enhancers okay great um there are more questions in the chat but unfortunately we are not going to have time really to talk about about them in any detail um here if you do have 
um, questions um, for Ellie, um, then I think Ellie did put up on her closing slide her email address. Um, I will also make sure that the, um, well, there you go, thank you, Tim, that the uh, questions that have been asked in the chat get forwarded to uh, to Ellie as well so that she gets an opportunity to answer those and we'll, we'll post those out at the answers to those out on, on Twitter in connection with the uh, uh, with with promoting um, the recording of this um, presentation. So we're going to have to leave it there. Ellie, thank you very much um, for what was a really, really thought-provoking um, presentation. Uh, knew it would be, having chatted to you beforehand, um, but uh, it was fantastic. So thank you very, very much um, for your time. Uh, and do, do hang around um, for the next uh, five or 10 minutes while we just uh, talk about some of the stuff that we've got coming up next year. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, so um, so now to, to, to just to, to take a, a moment to reflect a little more generally um, on, on what the association has been up to. And for those of you who aren't uh, aware of the association, you may have come across us. Uh, this may be the first time you've come across us um, because of the, uh, the, the this particular event. Um, we're a professional uh, membership body um, that's focused on, on everything about supporting and promoting the use of technology um, in assessment, and that's both formative and um, um, summative assessment. Um, we're based in the UK, but we have an increasing um, international presence, and it's really interesting to see um, where people are coming, are joining us today from. You know, we've got someone um, from Brazil um, joining us, and then obviously people within the UK as well, um, and I'm sure lots of other locations as well. So um, it's a it's a really um, uh, growing uh, community of people um, interested in supporting um, uh, the world of technology and assessment. Um, and if you do. Uh, want to join us if you're not already a member there's a link there on the side um, to uh, our, our membership sign up um, it's a free um, service in terms of joining becoming a member um, you can just go to the uh, the website e-assessment.com and then there's a, a join button on the right hand side so please do join us if this is an area that you um, that you're you're interested in and want to know more about and want to become part of a community it is worth pointing out that because we don't charge for membership we rely quite heavily um, on support from a range of commercial sponsors. We have 25 um, commercial sponsors um, in the uh, in supporting the association and what we do. Um, and those uh, organizations logos are, are on the screen at the moment. We're really grateful to all the support um, that our sponsors have given us um, over the over the last 10 or 12 years, but particularly over the last couple of years where which has been a difficult time for everybody and where the EAA has been trying to provide some guidance and support to a whole range of stakeholders um, in how to get the most out of using technology to support assessment. So thank you very much to uh, to all of our sponsors. Just a, a quick retrospect in terms of what we've been up to um, in, in the last 12 months. Um, the, the, the highlight of, of, of our year each year is, is our conference and awards. This year, um, as in uh, 2020, we had the challenge of delivering that um, entirely online, uh, whereas it would normally have been uh, certainly the conference, a face-to-face -face, um, event. But it actually, um, particularly this year, was a really good thing because it helped us to be um, really inclusive in terms of how we were engaging uh, with that wider sector across the world. And it's interesting if you look at the awards, you know, we had entries from 16 different countries around the world and we ended up with 21 finalists and they came from nine different countries. We had finalists um, in, in India, in, uh, in Australia, we had two in Australia, um, in uh, the UK, obviously, and in Ireland. So a really um, international flavor, which is one of the benefits of this virtual format. There are downsides, 
um, around not being able to network so easily, um, but there's definitely um, a, a benefit around uh, inclusion and, and wider reach. And that was true uh, with our conference as well this year. So this year we ran the conference as a series of four um, virtual events that were built around four themes that you can see on the screen there. Um, and we had um, you know, delegates joining from 53 different countries. Um, representing nearly 250 individual organizations, which is a fantastic um, achievement. Um, and, and I do want to say a big thank you at this point to all the people behind the scenes who um, worked tirelessly to, to organize the conference, particularly um, Karen Pernies, who many of you will know um, is the EAA's marketing and events manager, but also to uh, Tim Burnett, um, to Gareth Hopkins, and to others um, within the EAA board who have um, given their time to support the, the conference and the awards program, and also to all of our judges. So we have 28 judges um, who work in small teams of usually three or four to judge each of the different categories of the awards, and they give their time completely voluntarily. And having been involved in one of those judging teams this year for the first time, I really got a sense of, of how much time and effort they need to put in. So thank you um, once again to our judges. So that was last year. What about the year coming up? So um, we're going to be doing our conference again, obviously. This year, fingers crossed, and hopefully, um, we will be back to offering a face-to-face -face, um, uh, main focus for our conference. But we're very clear that we want to keep a hybrid element to the conference for all the reasons I was talking about a minute ago. Um, so that we can get that wider engagement. So we're going to um, try to build a, a hybrid event um, through the conference. The, uh, the main um, annual conference, the e-assessment conference, will take place in London as a face-to-face -face event on the 21st and 22nd of June, and there'll be a, a gala dinner um, on the middle evening. Um, but we're also going to look at ways of bringing delegates in virtually to that, uh, to that conference. The awards program has always been traditionally delivered as a virtual event and that will continue. And we have a series of three events planned, uh, virtual events planned in May around the different themes of the, uh, the conference categories. So on the 10th, the 17th and the 14th of May, culminating in that gala awards dinner, which will take place um, at the conference venue in London. We're also doing a range of other um, uh, act, bits of activity um, uh, through the year. And I've picked out just a, a few to highlight. We're heavily involved in the, uh, the BET show. So for those of you who aren't aware, the BET show takes place in London in January. Uh, didn't take place um, uh, this year because of the pandemic, but they're hoping um, that it will take place face-to-face -face, um, in January um, this coming year. Um, we've been invited to deliver four um, sessions that are focused around the assessment. I won't read them out there. They're on the screen for you to, to see. Um, if any of you are going along to BET, um, then please do come and join us um, for those sessions, um, because I think there's a, there's a great opportunity there to engage with a wider range of, of stakeholders within the broader market. BET is now the largest uh, educational technology show in the world, um, attracts um, 40 plus thousand um, visitors over the three days. Um, from right across the sector, schools to, uh, to universities and to work-based learning. So really um, fantastic opportunity for us to take that e-assessment agenda um, to a wider audience. And then we'll be complementing that activity and the conference and the awards programs with a range of, of, of webinars and podcasts um, and hopefully some face-to-face uh, -face regional events as well through the year. Um, we often co-host 
uh, webinars and, and podcasts with some of our sponsors. We've got one of those coming up uh, with Talview, uh, one of our, our, our gold sponsors around remote proctoring um, this particular, um, this week uh, on Friday. Um, so a range of those kind of activities will happen through the year as well. So really, um, hopefully, um, uh, exciting year coming up of some face-to-face -face interaction, but complemented by that virtual um, interaction with the wider wider range of stakeholders um, through the year. So really do encourage you to get involved in that. There'll be more details um, going out through social media and stuff around the conference, but the conference site um, is up and running. Um, you can go to the main EAA website, so e-assessment.com uh, forward slash conference um, to find out more. There's the link on, on the screen. Um, so do find out more about that and, and, try and, and do come along and get involved in the conference um, if you can. The awards, if you're involved in a project where you're where people are using technology in assessment, um, then do um, consider submitting an entry to the awards. Um, it's a great way of sharing best practice and exemplifying um, really good examples um, and lessons learned um, through the use of technology in assessment. So there you go. Um, that's a quick run through of, of what we've been up to and, and, and what we've got planned. Really, um, I want to end this by um, by wishing everybody um, uh, seasonal wishes for the time of year. So, um, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, um, and a very Happy New Year um, from us all at the EAA. Thank you very much for joining us today, um, and I hope you found the uh, the presentation from Ellie um, as interesting and thought provoking as I did. So we'll end there. Thank you again. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you at other EAA events um, in um, either the remote proctoring event later this week um, or in the new year um, at BET and at the conference and through the awards program. So thank you very much. And we look forward to, uh, to speaking to you all again very soon.